I am Tracy Hitchings. My guest today is the BBC broadcaster, Sarah Walker. Good morning, good afternoon and good evening and a very good night to you wherever you are across the globe. I am transmitting from the Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia. You have tuned into Tracy's Prog World. Sarah has already zoomed in from Egham in Surrey. This is part two. And, and again, it's an unearthly hour for Sarah. So thank you, Sarah, so much. But then, you know, it's rock and roll too, isn't it? <laughs> so I hope you got your coffee or your cocoa. I've got my cup of tea. Got, got my cup of tea, Tracy. Uh, Oh, <laughs> oh, that's a very British thing to do, darling. Very British. It is very British. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you for joining me again. And I'd love to talk about uh, your Sunday morning show, Sarah, that you give uh, for BBC Three. Yeah, Sunday morning on, on Radio Three. I've been uh, working on the show since 2017. And um, I have to say it's one of the most fun and rewarding programs that I've ever worked on I think the the difference for me is that um I choose most of the music myself which is something I was telling you in uh, the last uh, the last episode we did I, I was telling you about essential classics where um I was lucky enough to interview all those interesting people Tony Visconti and Rick Wakeman I was telling you before about um working on essential classics where I did all those um interviews with some very interesting people now that was a program where the musical side of things was all decided for me by brilliant producers. They would put the program together, make sure we had a really nice balance of music, make sure it all came out to time um, and, and all that sort of thing. And I would just write little links in between the pieces. Um, but with Sunday morning, I was asked to sort of include to build the program myself and include what music was interesting to me and what I really particularly liked so this was the first time I'd ever actually sort of built a radio program and it felt quite it felt quite challenging at first um you know because you think well where do I start you know I remember the first piece on that first program well where on earth do I start and um I suppose ultimately I thought well all you can do is start at the beginning and think, well, if I was just tuning into this programme, what would I like to hear at nine o'clock in the morning? Um, so I, I always try, for my first piece, I try and find something uplifting, quite gentle. I don't want, I wouldn't start with like a raucous march or anything that's just a bit too aggressive, um, just sort of uplifting and flowing, but it's got to be distinctive enough to sort of capture people's attention. Uh, to try and keep them with me. So in a way, that's what I do every week. I just start at the beginning and think, well, how am I going to start? And then I take it from there rather than throw pieces in, oh, this would be good for 10 o'clock, this would be good for 11 o'clock. I just start at nine and think, what do we want to hear first? And then what's going to follow on nicely after that? And I work um, usually about six weeks in advance which seems like a very long way, really, but there's so much organisation involved in getting a piece like that on air, uh, a programme like that on air, because, um, of course, the producers then have to go and find the music. And if I've suggested things that, oh, it's hard to get hold of this recording or hard to get hold of that recording, certainly while we've been in lockdown, um, producers can't just pop into the BBC gramophone library and find things um but obviously a lot more music is just available to download so you know 
usually we can find things, but I have to bear in mind that they have to go and find it and, and put it out on air. So I work, yeah, usually five or six weeks in advance. Um, and yeah, so it's a case of starting at the beginning and then thinking what's going to sound nice as my second piece and then going on and just building from there. And then I usually come to a point where I think, right, we need something a bit longer now. Um, I try to keep everything to more or less under 20 minutes because I feel longer than that and you haven't got the companionship of the presenter. Um, and I feel for a Sunday morning feel, I don't want anything to be too heavyweight. I, I want to keep people company. And I think when you tune in, you do want to hear a person, you do want to get the sense that a person is there keeping you company. So the longest piece I would play would tend to be about 20 minutes. So that's sort of your Haydn symphonies or, um, you know, your classical symphonies or a Baroque concerto, a Vivaldi concerto, maybe things like that, or maybe a piano sonata. Um, and then usually once I put my big piece in, I tend to think, right, I need something a bit unusual now. And I get the feeling that I need a change of mood or a change of atmosphere. So then I might go looking for something a little bit more folk influenced or a little bit more jazz influenced. And in fact, I have tried to build up a bit more eclectic, a bit more of an eclectic feel into the programme um, than perhaps my old programme Essential Classics used to be. And, and just to put in a little bit more jazz and a bit more folk and music that's, I guess, will just sort of change the atmosphere and just spice things up a bit. Um, and certainly, I think if you can keep the variety going, then often the airwaves sort of come alive, you know, when suddenly you put a piece on and you think, oh, yeah, that's the right piece. There's that feeling of just aliveness. And for that reason, I really like light music as well, you know, this sort of... <laughs> early 20th century, sort of early film music and that sort of, I don't know, old British or American sounds, you know, even quite sentimental old things I quite like to play. Uh, yeah, so it's just all about keeping a nice variety and uh, keeping people company, basically. Exactly. And it's amazing. You know, I, I was listening to a show a while back of yours. You might have to help me here. Um, forgive me that I cannot remember the name of the composer, but he was Japanese. He was a very young, westernized, styled composer. And this music, I was playing in my lounge. I was playing you in my lounge. You, I can hear you through in my lounge. And uh, it got, it had these beautiful pieces. I just absolutely fell in love with it. It was very meditative. One moment, of course, as these pieces can be, very mm. meditative. And the next minute I was doing my ironing to it. It was so fast. I thought, I've never ironed so fast <laughs> in my life. You know? <laughs> but Sarah, beautiful. And what I was going to say, though, the next minute there was something that you called on. And this was so such a while back that I, I, the names escaped me. So I wasn't quite ready for you. But uh, the next minute there was something I suppose would be quite... Um, causey like like the cause but um with obviously instrumental and it was beautiful it was a beautiful compliment on the show i don't know if that japanese composer comes to mind a very westernized um style of japanese composer i don't know who that composer would have been um but i've i've played quite a bit of 
Takamitsu, certainly sort of his guitar music and he's done some beautiful arrangements of Beatles songs and um, and all, all sorts of very interesting things and bits of film music too, which is why, why I'm wondering if it was him. I just love to, to try to introduce people to fresh things because I know when I listen to the radio, that's something that I really enjoy. If I hear things that I've never heard before, that just sort of gives me a bit of a thrill. I, I think perhaps when I listen to the radio, what I like best is to turn on and not have a clue what I'm listening to yeah, and just think, this is really interesting. Yes. Then maybe have a bit of a guess and realise I just really don't know what it is. And then you wait for the presenter to tell you what it is. And then a bit later on, you might have something incredibly well-known or something that you think, oh, yeah, I recognise this. I really like this. That combination of the completely unfamiliar and the very well-known I think that's one thing that I really love Radio 3 for. Yes. That that combination of different things. So you can educate yourself, surprise yourself, or just indulge in the stuff that you know that you love. Um, I find it quite therapeutic. I mean, even though for me, Radio 3 is work, <laughs> I still like to tune in and, and it's still sort of enables me to escape and to relax, even though it shouldn't do because it's work. So I still love to tune in, especially in the morning. And I listen to Essential Classics, which is now presented by uh, Susie Klein and Ian Skelly. I love listening to that. And I listen in the afternoons as well. And it's just a very sort of calming, relaxing, sane sort of radio station. Yes. And, you know, during the lockdown, we had a lot of people joining us, actually, that hadn't been listening before you know maybe thinking oh classical isn't really my thing and then just finding that it was just so soothing and especially as obviously there's a lot of news a lot of bad news and negative news and stressful news going on which of course you have to hear to a certain extent but people were turning to us so they could get the minimal news stories obviously we do keep people up to date we have news at certain set times throughout the day but it isn't news all the time and it isn't talking all the time. Uh, I mean, this is the most talking I've probably ever done, Tracy, on your podcast. <laughs> Normally, you know, my links only go on for about like one and a half minutes. And then and then I start thinking, oh, I've been, I've been talking too long. I better shut up now. <laughs> now, do you know what? I love the descriptions. Uh, to, to me, that's like, that's the connection, isn't it? I love the descriptions. I love it. And I love some of your descriptions of beautiful, Sarah. Your, your adjectives and the way you're describing and explaining. I love it. I think if you want to go for a bit longer, you should. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, yeah. That, 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 you know, and actually, it's funny because you were talking about it at some point about engaging younger people. Because mm. I have heard you say that the classics can be a bit elitist. And um, so engaging, not just necessarily younger people, because I know a lot more younger people now that are very, mm. very much more coming into this area, but um, there can be an attitude out there towards it. So how does that, how can we close that? How do you close that gap? Well, the tricky thing is, I think that more and more people aren't being exposed to classical music at school. And so that's why there's, there's this divide between people who, who have, have a way into classical music and so many of us who don't. Um, I, I think that's one reason I really like working for Radio 3 because I feel that Radio 3 closes that gap um, between, you know, it doesn't matter if you, if you haven't had a classical education and maybe you didn't do classical music at school, so you feel you don't really know anything or you haven't got a way in. 
all you have to do is tune to Radio 3 randomly at any point during the day. And if you don't know what it is you're hearing, there will be somebody there who will explain to you what it is, who will just give you that little bit of an introduction. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think also there are people who are doing things to try to improve the stuffy image of classical music, you know, the formality of it. And people are saying, well, actually, you don't have to be like that. And there are some incredibly cool young classical performers. To be a performer in, in the classical sense, you have to be so intensively trained that... Maybe then it, it is sometimes difficult for other people to relate to those performers. But having interviewed a lot of performers, I, I'm always amazed at how down to earth they are, you know. And you do meet some people who are incredibly talented, but also incredibly normal and fun to be with. And I feel it's getting more and more like that increasingly as people are just rejecting the old formality and saying, no, I don't want to do things like that I don't want to wear those formal old clothes I I quite like to come on and chat to my audience a little bit I don't want to stick to playing the same old repertoire in the same old way I'm going to mix it up and throw in some different things so I think I think the formality is gradually being eroded actually by some really nice and talented people <laughs> and do you, do you think it's had some help from these such so, shows uh dare i say like um britain's got talent or, or i don't know the x factor such as it was because they did start to bring some classical pieces on do you think it might have helped towards things at all or do you think that's just pure um entertainment i don't know whether it really has helped um no, have, have there been any classical artists who've really been successful in those sort of talent shows? I, I'm not sure. One of them that won it was Paul Potts, and he loved singing um, the, uh, well, I say opera, you know, he, he came on singing, oh, gums, I've got to think of what the song, song's called. Now, this, guy, this bedraggled guy came on to this competition, but he came on and he sang, I think, I think Miss Dora was his first song that he sang, sort of his teeth falling out and most unexpected. And you could see on the judges' faces, like, oh, what now? And uh, to a true classical teacher, they might have had something different to say, but the story mm. really got through. And this guy actually ended up, he was able to sing and he went on to win the show. And I just wondered at the time, I thought, well, at least this is helping to give some bridge, some sort of gap to bring it through because people were really, really going for him. They really wanted him to win. Yeah, because I, th I think at the end of the day, it, those things are just songs. You know, Nessandoma is just a song. You know, I mean, it happens to come from an opera, but at the end of the day, yeah, it's a song with an absolutely fantastic melody. It's a song uh, that's full of emotion and it's a song that people love to hear. They can relate to it. So it's a gateway. Would you say it's a gateway? It's not necessarily the classics, but it's a gateway. I definitely think so. Yeah. So, so all these things help, but um... yeah, that's, that's true. And um, I mean, in a way, this goes back to our, our first conversation when we were talking about uh, the early days of progressive rock and, and yeah. musicians who were being hired for pop gigs saying, actually, why should things be in these stilted old formats? Why should we just have our intro, our verse, our chorus and our end? Why shouldn't we go on for 15 minutes? And why shouldn't we start using all these complicated time signatures if that's what evolves organically? Um, you know, and again, just to go back to what Rick Wakeman said, you know, it, it, 
they were almost like scientists. That's what he said, just putting a song together like a jigsaw. Just let's try this and let's try this. And that that bit fits with that. And this leads on to that very nicely. But I mean, no doubt about it. I mean, in a way, he made it sound quite easy. But when I went back and was listening to those <laughs> recordings, you know, I was telling you about um, my favourite prog songs like Close to the Edge um, by Yes. I don't, and I was listening and thinking, well, crikey, I, uh, even now, and I've worked in the contemporary music, the classical contemporary music field where the time signatures, honestly, Tracy, they're just yes, crazy. Yeah, yeah. And listening to listening to that era yes you know from the early 70s I couldn't work out what the time signatures were so <laughs> so complex and not only were they complex but but the ensemble is amazing everybody is absolutely playing together absolutely on it I'd I'd love to know actually the extent to which they were playing from music and the extent to which they were just remembering it and how did they all get it together? They're just amazing performers, really, you know, and and, and having having played uh, contemporary classical music, quite complicated music, I, I really, and I know how hard it is, I have such a lot of respect <laughs> for prog rock world, you know, for, for being able to play in those yeah. sorts of uh, complex ways, but make it sound so organic and and exciting and fun and speaking of which you as i uh, as we both know that you was involved in a king's ransom with clive nolan and and of which we are both friends with and if you can uh, tell me about that experience and what you experienced there oh that that was such fun i was so delighted to hear from clive um and he got in touch to say that he was preparing the rehearsal piano part for king's ransom because obviously you know, when, you, when you've got a theatre company and people rehearsing, you need a pianist who can play the whole thing, you know, whole, the whole sort of orchestra um, just, just on the piano. So a piano reduction can be a bit of a nightmare because sometimes people just try to write all the orchestral parts into the two staves of a, of a piano, you know, a, a, a piano notation, and it can be overcomplicated over heavy impossible to play and an absolute nuisance and you know and the poor old pianist is trying to hold it all together so Clive got in touch and said would you have a look at the piano reduction that I've made and tell me if um if it's viable you know is it um is it realistic? <laughs> uh, is it playable? Is any of it just too difficult? So literally we started at the beginning yeah. and I was just sight reading. So I was sitting at Clive's little keyboard um, over in Virginia Water and just playing through. And it was quite sweet because Clive couldn't help himself singing. He was just sitting behind me and he was singing along to everything. Um, and and of course, I was sight reading, so it was difficult, but I could still tell which parts were too difficult and a bit unrealistic. And occasionally I just had to say, no, stop, 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 stop this. This is too complicated. This needs unpicking. Yeah. It's too dense or this bit here. They're never going to be able to play that in the time of whatever it was. So anyway, we just worked our way through, fueled with lots of cups of tea. <laughs> 
anything stronger? <laughs> you're trying, well, actually, no. I mean, had I had anything stronger, Tracy, I would, I, it's funny. That's the first thing that goes, you know, you, well, absolutely. You know, if you, you know, you, you have a drink and like your fingers turn to jelly and, oh, anyway, by the end, um, I, I knew, I knew the whole musical really well. I, I, um, I absolutely loved it. Um, and I'd only pointed out, you know, four or five places, I think, where I felt the piano part wasn't quite working. And so Clive just, you know, did circles in the score. I said, right, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll see to it. I came away thinking, well, if I was going to say which is the big number from that, you know, which tune am I going to go away singing? I almost couldn't say because everything is at that level, that, that high level of being just super tuneful super memorable but also original you know it's not quite like anything else and 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 harmonically you know he he just sort of strides through his progressions with such a lot of confidence and writes so sort of intuitively and just writes great parts of voices too you know male and female voices choruses he seems to just understand and because he's got a classical background as well he understands all the different some of the slightly older genres you know so you'll get kind of a, a, a hint of a patter song here and there which is a little bit Gilbert and Sullivan and um you know and he's he he has a handle on the sort of the comedy songs and then the yes, big exactly, numbers yeah. and everything yeah. the big instrumental numbers so it was absolutely fantastic and it was a wonderful experience for me I, I really really enjoyed it and you know, I I don't get that many chances to play the piano in a way that is helpful for somebody else. You know, I'm mostly just playing to myself as an amateur pianist playing at home and I do get a lot of enjoyment out of it. But doing something like that, feeling that I was being useful, <laughs> that was that was really nice because it's lovely to be useful and to work with other people. And, you know, we all need outlets, don't we? You're obviously a very upbeat and very organised person, you know, talking about being six weeks ahead of your show, Sarah, honestly. It's probably a bit neurotic working six weeks ahead. If I, One of my producers sort of hinted that I could calm down a bit, actually. But I'm always thinking, you see, Tracy, if I, if I work six weeks ahead, then if I bag a certain piece, then nobody else can play it that week. Whereas if I wait and they've already bagged it, then I might lose it. See what I mean? So there's a kind of method in my madness. You've heard it here, Sarah Walker, very cunning. <laughs> Let's think about your personal habits and routines, which keep you going in this way and keep this up. Um, what would you say that they are? I find journaling really helpful and really therapeutic. And I've written a diary since I was about 10. And believe it or not, I have every single year I kept them all. I think there was only a very brief period when I didn't write, which was when I was at university, because oh, I'm a big girl now. I don't need to write a diary. Um, but I soon returned to it. I can't imagine ever talking to a therapist if I was going through troubles. That would, you know, I'd, I'd be quite uncomfortable about sharing my inner self with another person. <laughs> It probably makes me very neurotic, but I feel that in my journal, I can work out anything, really. I, it helps me to organise my thoughts, to tell where I'm thinking in a distorted way or where I'm just being negative. And does it also plan out your day as well? Does it out plan out? Do you use it to plan out your day as well ever or 
Yeah, because in a way, in a way for me, there's there's no boundary between sort of mental health and the day to day. It's one, really, isn't it? You know, because if your days start to become unbalanced and chaotic, then you start to get stressed and you start to get tense and then you're not very well. Um, so sometimes. Yeah, I will do a massive to-do list and I will put everything on that list from the tiniest, most superficial things to the biggest, most, well, the biggest, least likely to ever be achieved things. Uh, But they all just go down on the page, which to me is like draining my brain. And I find that very therapeutic. And then I might make a little mini list of what I feel I might be able to achieve tomorrow, which is a very different thing. But also it's nice to, I don't know, just just keep in touch with the things that you're curious about. Because I think sometimes if we're working very hard and say you've got family commitments and you've got a lot of work on, you can lose touch with, I don't know, those little magical things. I read I read something somewhere recently that I thought that's a lovely way of putting it. Somebody said, I'm in danger of losing touch with unreality. <laughs> And I thought, yes, that is how I feel. When I'm too in touch with reality, I'm not entirely happy. And I think if you're a creative person who who has an imagination, you need to be in touch with unreality. Well, isn't that like going back to that inner child again, isn't yeah. it? It's going back to that inner child. I think we must never lose that. That's where it's all from. I, I think yeah. the rest of it is being created for us by some sort of um, ridiculous idea of what we are. And, and we're not. I know. But... Um, other than the having to keep to, there is a clock. We've had to have it. We've had to have the twenty-four hour clock created in order that we can actually, you know, do something by day and sleep by night. But other than that, yeah. I think the rest of it is just absolutely pressing down on our ability to be, you know, to be more. So, uh, yeah, come on, you've got to get at least two or three shows ahead so you can relax. I know I, it's a funny thing though, isn't it? You you think well, if if I do this, then I'll be able to relax. But somehow that moment never comes. And the faster you go, uh, it doesn't make any difference. You never get to the other side of the work. The work is always there. I don't know. It's a case of just sometimes you have to almost force yourself to, to get back to your inner world, the inner world of unreality and, you know, write that song, write that story, paint that picture, sing that music. Uh, and get back to the things that you you've always loved yes Sarah is there a time on your journey where unexpected hardship where you learned from it or maybe I think in a way one time where I really did learn the power of journaling and the power of writing out my own experience was um, shortly after I'd had my daughter Maria and she was just a baby of nine months old and I found out that I had breast cancer and this was like a a a tremendous shock you know I was only 37 and um, absolutely not expected but of course as you probably know you you very quickly find out that um, nobody expects breast cancer (laughs) well uh, you know it's um it's horrible well, it's not right to say nobody because obviously if it runs in your family, then you're much more aware. But most breast cancers, I believe, are like what I had, just completely uh, random. You know, nobody in my family had ever had cancer at all. So, um, you know, to find myself 
uh, with a malignant lump at the age of 37 and with a relatively new baby was mm. a tremendous shock. But I have to say... But that's not failure in any way. That's happenings, isn't it? No, so, that, that just um, happened. And, yeah. and I had to get my head around it, uh, around the uncertainty of not knowing what would happen um, by writing in my journal. And that's what I did. And and I remember sort of coming up with almost like a contingency plan and saying, well, if this happens, I will do this. and This will be my approach. And if that happens, this will be my approach. And however unrealistic it was, I worked out in my own mind how I was going to tackle all the different yes. possibilities of what might have happened. Um, yes. And I had, after that, well, I had one sleepless night, which was the night I was diagnosed. And, and from that point onwards, I slept perfectly well because I had my own head straight and I felt I was on top of things. So for that, that personal routine and habit obviously played a very big part in that, that, that um, habit that you've got formed. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, I don't know how I would have managed without it really, but I learned that you could sort of get your head around anything if you thought about it long enough you would think of a solution you would think of a positive attitude a positive way around and a way of coping um and absolutely it it, it worked for me and I sort of wrote my way through that um and it really helped it plays a massive part in recovery and uh, okay, so I'm going to go through it, and and I'm going to get over this, and that's going to happen, and I'm going to, and you're in your case, you're writing this down. In my case, I did see therapists. Yeah, <laughs> became a therapist too. Well, that's great. That's good. Oh, I became one. So you know, through uh, through, well, through my um, experiences, it's incredible that we have our different ways of pursuing these things, isn't it? But it, the the biggest thing that you've said is about the positive mental attitude. Yeah. No matter what, and it can be tough when you've got this underlying thing going on. Of course, it is. But it's all—it's also what you've got around you and who you've got around you. So, how was your husband Martin, the percussionist? Um, how was he there for you? How was the experience for him? Do you well, think? Well, he was absolutely fantastic, uh, looking after our daughter. You know, because suddenly he—we—we we just almost got into a good routine with her. She was at that age, nine months, where she'd settled into a good routine, sleeping a bit better. We were getting used to the little things you do with a baby and how you get through the day and everything. And so all that went a bit upside down, but um, he was great. He, you know, took her off out for walks and looked after her as well as he could. Um, and he was just, just became an absolutely amazing dad. Um, and he was just there for me. So, you know, it, I mean, in a way, when you've got a baby like that, well, I suppose it's the same for anybody really going through, cancer treatment you just you know you have to carry on really you can't it's not like going for us going to a spa for six months is it it's like life carries on you know and I carried on I, I carried on working to quite a great extent and um you know still had to get up and feed her you know and and in a way it kept me going because I couldn't just go under the duvet and hide which wouldn't have helped anyway, but I couldn't escape. I had absolutely to get up and take her where she needed to be taken and get up and feed her when she needed to be fed. And Martin was doing that as well. But we, I think we realized pretty quickly that 
we were better off. We just carried on as normal. And that's just what we did. We just carried on as normal. How long did it take you to overcome it to, to your all clear? Um, well, as you know, they never really give you an all clear, but when you reach, yeah, when you reach a, a two year anniversary, you tend, uh, you know, the chances of it coming back are much less, aren't they? Um, but the actual time I was in active treatment, well, um, it was probably six months or so because there was chemotherapy and then radiotherapy. That That's what I had. And once that was over, that was it, really. I was then, you know, just sort of, right, right, you're done now. Get back out there and just carry on. Um, it taught me how strong I could be. And that I could cope with whatever life threw at me. And and I did feel for a while really quite, wow, if I've got through that, I can get through anything. But the funny thing is that I think after a while, you go back to your grumpy old self. And in a way, that's when you know you've healed. You know you've healed when you go back to your grumpy old self after being a bit high for a while. Um, and I, I often question myself about these things, you know. Am I learning or am I experiencing? I, I now think, no, actually I'm experiencing, but I'll learn from it what I want. I feel almost I've had to learn the cancer lessons a few times over and over. Like most of us have false alarms after we've been through that. Various times when you think, oh my God, it's come back and you've got some strange symptom or other and you have to get tested out, which can be quite a long, drawn out, difficult process. You know, you don't just go to the doctor and get patted on the head. You have to go for tests and things. And at those times I found myself frightened again as if I've learned nothing, you know, and, and then I have to learn to get my head around it again. Part of you doesn't change despite what you go through. And uh, I think a lot of me hasn't changed despite everything I've been through and the age that I'm at now, I feel in some ways I'm still the same as I was as a young girl, same fears, same insecurities. Um, and perhaps I'll, I'll always be like that. But on the, on the positive side, yes, but maybe I've always been rather positive. I think it sort of keeps keeps you youthful in a way if you if you still have a sort of questing questioning attitude I mean I wouldn't like to be one of these people who sort of has sorted everything out in life and you know has grown up and has stopped her right now I know about everything and I'm kind of settled and I know what's true and what's false I'm still someone who sees things in shades of grey a lot of the time and but that's life we are as we are aren't we we can you know and you still you still fully accomplished life on all levels and that's what's truly amazing yeah um something that's actually tickling me and I'm remembering if I might say if you don't mind me telling you something um that I can't remember whether I've shared this with you or not I have a short story that involves Rachmaninoff on Bob Moore in Cornwall and a beautiful young heroine and she's an, an incredible musician and a broadcaster and um anyway I was driving from Oxford 
in the UK, somewhat 15 years old ago, I think, you know, give or take, I'm not entirely sure when. And I was driving to Falmouth or St. Moore's in Cornwall, which should have actually taken me about four and a half hours. And I should have arrived about five o'clock in the afternoon, still with some daylight. And um, anyway, the weather was closing in as I was driving. And as soon as I crossed the border from sunset to Devon, I felt, I thought, oh my God, there's a hurricane coming in. What's happening? You know, the rain was going crazy and it was just the weather was coming in. I thought, oh, I hadn't really accounted for that. And um, anyway, as I hit Cornwall on the A30, it was like um, dark going towards Bob Memorial. And I thought, oh, you know, this is a bit iffy. Anyway, I thought I'm going to stop at the Jamaica Inn and find a room. This is just, this is just too much. It really was. I was like, you know, when you're gripping the wheel so hard and your sort of whole body's like, and the rain was driving so hard. And uh, um, and I hit Bob Memorial and it became really kind of even worse on those small winding roads. Anyway, I thought, okay, I'm going to stop off at the Jamaica Inn, find a room or prop up the bar until daylight, do something and get out of the situation. <laughs> now, uh, virtually no other cars on the road. It really was feeling uneasy and eerie. So um, going, that was going over the moor, Bobman Moor. So uh, the rain got less, but the mist came in, the fog came in. Yeah, and driving in those narrow and winding roads, I felt really uneasy. So I put on the radio... <laughs> but couldn't tune into a station other than a French one. So I started getting upset because I needed something familiar. <laughs> I think <laughs> trying to tune into familiarity. But um, anyway, then I found I was right upon a car in front of me when I could barely see the visibility was so poor. It was so eerie. And I thought, ah, I'm not so alone out here. So it was a bit of a sigh of relief. Oh. And thank God I didn't bump into him or her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because of the visibility. Anyway, and then an arm, an arm from the driver's seat was waving me down in this very slow motion, almost ballet-like dance away. And within the mist and these winding roads on the moor where there's no light, it was just, and you could obviously just see him making this out. And I couldn't see if it was a man or a woman as I drove past. And I thought, oh, I should stop. Um, it could be somebody in trouble. And I thought, oh, 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 no, 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 no. It could be an axe murderer. Oh, I, I, oh, my God, I must be very near Warleg and Ditchwater or Colliford Lake. I could end up at the bottom of one of them all chopped up or something like that. Oh. So fear had actually taken grip of me. Not, I'm not stopping to help. I just can't. Even if I'm wrong, I just can't. Anyway, I was trying the radio again. I was thinking of things like American Werewolf in London, that movie, and, uh, you know, the, the kind of the slaughtered lamb pub. You know, they're all waiting for me. Yeah. And anyway, <laughs> I know. So, I, exactly. And I was trying the radio again for, for, you know, for some company. No luck. Not even the French station were at that time. And I called the police on my mobile to report the arm waving thing, but the police wouldn't talk any further unless I stopped my car. And I said, "No way! I'm terrified. I, I you know, I'm driving really slowly." I got uh, so angry. I just put down the phone again. Oh. So they rang me back again and told me to put my car over. So I pulled over, but I thought, no, I'm not stopping. No, no way. I'm not stopping. So I threw the phone down again. And um, all that was going over my head then again was American Werewolf in London. <laughs> And all these horrible things. And I don't know what happened to the Jamaica Inn, that pub on the moors. I just don't know what happened. But anyway, so playing around with the radio again. And uh, lo and behold, familiar language, that of English, with that soothing voice of a young radio presenter talking and describing some sort of musical composition on the radio that was just um, about to be played. And I felt calm coming over me. And I thought, oh, you know, and I thought, I know this. 
I, I, I know this, or I know that voice, who is it? And as I was listening and thought, I know who that is, as she was introducing Rachmaninoff, it's Sarah, it's Sarah, it's Sarah Walker, Sarah Pine, oh. as I said to myself back then, obviously her husband, and, um, and all of a sudden I've just felt better and I burst into tears though, this was release, Sarah, this was release. Yeah. And um, honestly, it took me out of that most dreadful fear. It was a horrible oh. night. And um, so that's the night that Sarah Walker, BBC presenter, and Rachmaninoff saved my life. Because I honestly thought I was going to end up in Collingford Water or something like that and all chopped off. <laughs> oh, Tracy. I'm so glad I was there for you. You was. You was. No, I don't remember you ever telling me that story. But I'm... I'm just delighted that I was sort of there for you. But that's the magic of yeah. radio, I think. The, the, there's something so intimate and so consoling about radio. And I think that's why I like working in that, in that uh, medium, really. It leaves the imagination um, there as well. And because of your voice and your calmness and your beautiful descriptions. and I think there's an intimacy about it that, that just makes it so nice. You know, you feel that, that the, the presenter is talking just to you. So, Sarah, what's really important to you? And what would you like to say to anybody out there with regards to what you do? Well, I think one really important thing for me is for people to just feel really comfortable with listening to classical music and not to feel that it's something that just because they don't have a background in it or didn't do it at school, that it's something that should put them off. Um, so I'd really just like to build the audience for my show. I suppose that that's my ultimate professional goal at the moment, just get uh, get more people listening. And also for me, I guess, just to keep it fresh, keep finding interesting, varied music. I you know, I've been doing it for three years now and I just hope it never becomes stale. I always want it to feel as fresh and as engaging as it possibly can be. So I just hope I really carry on enjoying it as much as I am doing now and just bring more people along for the ride because it really is just such an yes. amazing world, the world of classical music. There's always something you're going to like. I can't believe anybody could not like any classical music because the variety, you know, you're looking at centuries and centuries of music. You know, we, we play pieces right going right back to the 1300s, performed in so many different ways. And so I think there's something for everybody. And I really hope that I welcome people onto the programme and just make them feel comfortable and at home and you know just that they're having a really pleasant engaging Sunday morning that isn't soporific and boring so you want to go back to sleep and isn't overstimulating so you feel stressed I just want to get it in that absolute sweet spot so just people have a lovely Sunday morning with me really that's it that just sounds absolutely beautiful. I can't even really put it much better than that, uh, guys and dolls out there. And another thing's popping into my head, Sarah, not to let you go yet, because you're so accomplished. I have not brought up the fact that for 20 years, you have been in a big band. Uh, I'm very jealous. Tell me a little bit about that. Come on. This is great. <laughs> well, when I first joined the band, we were known as the Strode's Big Band, and uh, we rehearsed at Strode's College in Egham. And uh, I just turned up um, not really knowing much about how to play jazz. I only had a very vague idea of what all the chord symbols meant. 
<laughs> but I, the thing is, I think if you know enough of classical music, you can sort of um, intuit your way through it. If you know certain progressions, you know, you know, certain chords, two, five, one, if you can play two, five, one and recognize a two, five, one, then you can cope with quite a bit of jazz. Uh, I'm simplifying a lot, of course. Uh, but um, I found I was able to sort of more or less find my way through the parts um, and then just stuck with it, really. And gradually became more able to play the more complicated chords and gradually became able to play a slightly crude solo but solo nevertheless a bit of improvising came in and um yeah it <laughs> funny thing is Tracy it took me about 18 years before I took the plunge and had some lessons in jazz piano I know isn't it stupid I I I, I don't know why it took me that long maybe I just didn't feel worthy but um after having some tuition with Tim Richards and Gabriel Latchin, I have learned such a lot and become a lot more competent. But ironically, now we're in lockdown, so the band isn't happening. So I'm a much better jazz player now. <laughs> isn't it funny, even though there's, there's stuff that's going on out there, that's, um, it can be pretty horrific for some people's circumstance, but uh, it also, the, the benefits from it, from this that we've been actually able to engage more in other things family uh, uh yeah absolutely i mean i've had more time to practice and more time for things like painting which i enjoy doing and and also domesticity just sort of being with the family a bit been on some nice long walks with martin i've done a bit more gardening a bit more cooking what do you like cooking i quite like doing Slightly traditional meals, like a really nice piece of fish and some new potatoes and some green vegetables. And I love that. The trouble is Martin doesn't like fish because he doesn't like the bones. So who's been your favourite composer who most influenced you in the classics? I love um, French, what they call impressionist music. So Debussy, um, I like very much. Um, I love the sort of the colours of the chords and the... The, the just the feel of the harmonies and um again there's there's slightly there's slightly less obvious clunky structures in the music it just feels more organic and uh yeah I like that what's been the worst thing that's ever happened to you in music the worst thing that's ever happened to me in music <laughs> um nothing but you know I just got to try it on <laughs> yeah I'll tell you what that was I remember being entered for a music festival when I was little and I played I think I had to play that famous Chopin Nocturne in E flat and um, the adjudicator talked about everybody and gave out points. And I worked out that I'd came second, that I'd come second. And I thought, oh, that's not bad because a, a lot of the other kids were older than me. But then he said that the, the standard of the class was so low that, that apart from awarding a first prize, he refused to award the second and third because the standard had been so low. <laughs> that is the worst thing that happened to me ever. How old were you? Or how young were you, I should say? Oh, I think I was about 12. Oh, gosh. Well, old enough to be bitter and remember oh, that. Oh, so, but it's so young. And we, we can feel so hurt at that age. The world's so, so like know. that, isn't it? And now, now you look back on it and probably laugh your little socks off. But, you know, at that time, it, it means something, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought, I was stupid man. And, and I didn't play that badly. <laughs> I don't believe you did for a minute, but you know what? Some of these people have hang-ups, so um, something didn't quite happen for them, so it's it's time to take it out on somebody else. And um, what's been the biggest surprise in your life? The biggest surprise? 
Probably just becoming a radio presenter in the first place, you know. Um, it's not something I could ever have imagined happening because, uh, you know, when I was growing up with the radio, it was all very received pronunciation. And I don't think I ever heard a presenter with a Yorkshire accent on the radio, <laughs> also, you know, on Radio 3. And so, um, yeah, I think just being sort of accepted and welcomed into Radio 3, feeling very much at home and uh, and the fact that they kept on booking me, I think that was for me the big surprise. Well, you know your business and you have the most gorgeous regional accent. It's very soft, actually. And you come from Barnsley, don't you? And you've still got your ties back there? Uh, yes. I, my younger brother um, is still there and uh, my mum is there. <coughs> Excuse me. My mum is still there. She's very frail now. She's in a care home. Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys and dolls, you have been listening to Sarah Walker, BBC broadcaster. Hasn't it been absolutely warming, heart-founding and lovely to hear her stories? And uh, as we go back a long way, and uh, isn't it funny, everything sort of ties in. I know, everybody knows everybody now. The world is getting smaller, Sarah, isn't it? So, Oh, it certainly is, yeah. It's just great to be able to hook up with each other, you know, um, just just so easily through social media just say hi and then you know build a bit of a relationship and get together uh on a zoom call and i i think it's just fantastic so sarah what message would you give to any of your fans out there or anybody new listening that should go and have a listen to your show because it's wonderful i i just feel if if you have any sort of curiosity about classical music or classical instruments anything like that just randomly tune to radio three doesn't have to be for my sunday morning show (laughs) just just tune in anytime if you hear something you don't like tune in again half an hour later you'll hear something completely different and if you just keep on randomly tuning in you'll be amazed how your familiarity and education and just awareness and and appreciation and love of classical music will just grow. So I would just say, yeah, just, just tune in. So once again, that was the wonderful Sarah Walker, BBC broadcaster. And I, again, I just love these stories. I love stories. I love this. So this is to Sarah saying a cheerio to you all out there. Cheerio. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, everybody, for listening in. This has been absolutely lovely. And take care of yourselves. Love each other. Don't forget, you know, it's just life. And we just got to embrace it. And uh, crap can come, but it can also go. And um, here's wishing you a wonderful time out there, whatever you're doing. Thank you so much, all of you out there, for tuning into and supporting Tracy's Prog World.